I just have a very simple uh, little pastoral word for you today. This is not some great study. There's nothing great. There's, there's nothing deep. This is not rocket science. There's nothing like that going on, but I hope that God will use it to speak to you. I, I want to talk to you today about the miracle at the end of the road. The miracle at the end of the road. And if you'll turn to Acts chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. But before we start reading, let me just very, very briefly set the scene for you. The fourth wave of persecution has already hit the church in Jerusalem by this point in time. And, and uh, Stephen has, has just been murdered. And, and the, the disciples are, are being scattered from Jerusalem because of the persecution that they are encountered. And Philip, who, who was one of the seven ordained deacons from chapter 6, you can read about that later, which was really, a deacon was a, a, a position of service. And you'll remember Stephen was one of those deacons and God used him in signs and wonders and miracles until he was stoned to death. And now here's, this is a story about Philip, one of his colleagues, another one of the deacons who has at this time fled Jerusalem because of the persecution and he's gone to Samaria. And when he went to Samaria, he began preaching there in Samaria. That's one of the beautiful things that happened when the church spread, even though I believe God allowed the persecution because he told him to go in all the world and they just kept sitting there in Jerusalem. You know, how many of you know that it's really comfortable when God does something just to kind of sit there? But uh, he allowed the persecution to come and they began to scatter. But they didn't just scatter and hide. They preached the word as they went all over the world. And so Philip is doing that very thing here. And he's, begin, he's begun preaching there in Samaria, away from Jer Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was much joy in that city. All right, so there's this great revival that takes place. Now let's skip down to verse 26, because this is the heart of what I want to look at. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the, from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about somebody, someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture he told, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch 
excuse me, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Ozotus. Now, just in passing, I've always been intrigued by that passage because Philip is in the water with the eunuch. He baptizes the eunuch, and as the eunuch comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit just snatches Philip away, takes him to Ozotus. And here's what I've always wondered, and this has nothing to do with the message, but I've always been curious about this. Was, was Philip wet? <laughs> when, he, when he came out, when he was in the river with the Ethiopian, and all of a sudden he's on the, standing on the street corner of Ozotus, that he's like, was he dripping wet? I, I just means nothing, but I just wonder. I'm curious about that. Anyway, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I want you to just put your hand on your Bible or on your phone, if, you, if that's what you're using for your Bible, or maybe just put it on your heart, and let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd use me today, if possible. Lord, I just want to be open and tender to your voice, and I know that I'm weak, and I know I don't have the words of life, but I also know that you do. And I pray that you would speak to us today in a very real and powerful way. I pray, God, that you would cause faith, supernatural faith, to rise up in our lives. Lord, we, we know that we need you. And we just ask that you would have your way in us, and we believe you for all of these things. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Some time back, a um, university student at, one of, at, a, at a Christian university went up to talk to the president of, of the school. And, and uh, this young man in the school, he was one of their prized students. He was as good looking as a movie star and he was just smart and talented. And, and, and he walks up to the president of the college who was very accessible to the students. And, and he said to the president of the college, he said, the other day I went to a prayer meeting that I had never attended before. And he said, while I was there, a, an, a, an older middle-aged woman came up to me and said, the Lord has revealed to me that you are supposed to marry my daughter. I mean, he, 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 she, she said, I have prayed and God has spoken. She said, she said, I am speaking to you as thus saith the Lord, you are supposed to marry my daughter. And the young man in his desperation, looked at the president of the Bible of the Christian University and said, Sir, what do you think I ought to do? And the university said, Young man, son, I know exactly what you need to do. Flee the wrath to come. <laughs> Run away as fast as you can. You know, that woman was no more guilty of no more than what so many of us are guilty of, and that is that we so easily confuse our will with God's will. Our ideas with God's ideas, our thoughts with God's thoughts, our ways with God's ways. We're so clear on what seems to be the right thing that we want to impose that on the mind, the will, and the way of God. But, but here's what I've found over the years, and maybe you can relate with this. Here's the thing. God is like God. You know, and he is the sovereign, omnipotent ruler of the universe. And, and, and he's really kind of funny about his job. He doesn't share it with anybody. Not, not with anybody. He just expects to be obeyed. The thing is, though, that obedience to God's will is not always going to make sense to us. Anybody ever figured that out? 
And, and it is to that difficulty that I want to speak today. And I want to give you just two basic points uh, about, about the obeying God and being obedient in difficult situations. And the first thing I want to mention to you is that, is that God's road that he chooses for you may not look like the one that we would have chosen. It may not look like the road that, that you would have chosen. Now, listen to how God speaks to Philip here following this great revival in Samaria. I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal revival. It was amazing. I want, you, I want you to hear this. Every person who hears Philip preach is converted. They said with one accord, they responded to the message of the preaching of the gospel and the signs that were being, there were signs and wonders and miracles going on and demons are being cast out and the lame were being healed and they were leaping for joy. It was just this, enormous revival going on there in the city of Samaria. And then a little bit later on, Peter and John arrived from Jerusalem. We didn't read this part, but you can read it later. Peter and John arrived from Jerusalem. And, and then there's a second wave of revival. It's a panic, Pentecostal outpouring as all the people who have been saved are now, they now receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then, then they're all baptized in water. I mean, you just imagine the, the kind of revival where whole cities are saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and water baptized. Just, just imagine the enormity of what God was doing in that moment. Now, I, I don't want to impose on the great man of God my own level of carnality, but, but were the people of the Bible so different from us? I mean, were they so different from us? Think about how you might have prayed following that great revival. I think I know how I would have prayed. I, I would have prayed something like, Lord, thank you, for, thank you for giving me the city of Samaria. Thank you for these signs and wonders and miracles. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. This has been so wonderful, Lord. Now, now Lord, which city do you want me to take? Which city do you want me to go to now? Should I go to Jerusalem? Would, would you like to use me to see every person in Jerusalem saved? Or what about Rome, Lord? The political and military center of the world? Take me to Rome. Or, or maybe we'd say, I, I might say, take me to Athens in that situation. The city of, that's the city of wisdom and learning. Take me to Athens, Lord. Maybe the whole city of Athens will, will be one. And in response, God says, none of the above. None of the above. I want you to go down the road to Gaza. Now, now listen to this. When, when God speaks to you, God is never going to con you. He's not, ne never going to try to trick you. He's not going to say one thing and then pull a fast one and show you something else. He's completely honest. With you. He says, go down the road to Gaza. And he doesn't make it easy on him. It says that is a desert place. He said, I want you to go on the road out, out into the desert. I don't want you to, get to go to another city. Go out on this road that leads out into the, des into the desert. Now, is it just me or am I the only one that ever hears God speak and begins to wonder to yourself if God dialed the wrong number? You ever had that moment where you hear God speak and you're like, wait a minute, wait. I think you're talking to the wrong person here. But, but here's the thing. You know, I mean, we, we would say like if we were Philip, we'd say, Lord, Lord, you, you, you got to hold the wrong person here. I, I have the ministry of cities. Somebody else has the ministry of deserts, you know, because we, we every time does gives anybody a miracle. We, he runs the risk of spawning a, a ministry in that we think that every time God does something supernatural, that it's a sign that that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's how it's 
always going to work and it's going to turn out that way every single time. You know, we say, Lord, thank you. I thank that you have given me the city of Samaria. Which city is next? And he says, Gaza, which is desert. Now, now here's a remarkable thing in the story and the reason that Philip stands head and shoulders above most of us. And I, I like this part. It says that Philip immediately rose and went down the road to Gaza and he sees a man riding along in a chariot in the middle of the desert. And God says to him out there, he says, all right, go over and join this chariot. And, and now listen to the words it says. It says, so Philip ran to him. Listen, when you can obey God enthusiastically, energetically, and with joy in the midst of the desert, that's when you begin to move closer and closer and closer to the miracle that's at the end of the road. He doesn't stand back and Philip doesn't stand back and say, no, no, Lord, I, I, if you want me to talk to him, I, I'll just wait. And if he wants to, to call me, he'll call me. If he wants to talk to me, he'll talk to me. And he doesn't say, Lord, Lord, you got me out here in the desert. Nothing's here. Nothing's working. It's hot. It's dry. Nothing's good. And, 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 and starting complaining about all these things. Instead, when the opportunity arises to reach one single person, one single person, in the middle of the desert, he runs to that opportunity. Now, now listen to this. This is the key to ministry and to the miracle at the end of the road. Philip seizes upon that one single opportunity as if it were a whole city. He says, I'm going to give as my full energy as much to reaching this one person as I would to preaching a revival to thousands of people. Listen, my friend, God may well unlock a city, but first he may give you one soul. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. I, I tell preachers all the time, listen, if, if you're not willing to preach in front of five, God's not going to give you the opportunity to preach in front of 5,000. You've got to be willing to do those things. I'm actually absolutely convinced of the spiritual principle that he who was obedient and faithful in small things will be made master of great things by God. God may lead you to great places to do great things, but God may call you first to a desert place. Now, here's, here's one of the problems in the evangelical world, but especially in charismatic and Pentecostal world. In the Pentecostal and charismatic world, we have a really, really hard time believing that God will ever call us deliberately to a desert. Now, listen, I believe in a good God. I believe his will for us is good. I believe his purpose for us is good. I do not believe that God is cruel in any way. It's not like he's up in heaven pulling wings off of butterflies for fun. That's not what he does. However, I will tell you that sometimes a desert doesn't just happen to us, but it is God's explicit, perfect will for the immediate and present moment because he's trying to accomplish something through us and in us. In that desert. And sometimes his, he is at work in us doing something that is far more important than our own comfort. Far more important than that. I, want to, I, I, I remember a time, I'll tell you a story to help understand, maybe make a point about this. We were on vacation, our family and I, when we were living in South Carolina. And it was a long drive. It's a 19-hour drive from from Georgetown to where my family is in Kansas City. And, and we always stopped in Nashville, which is about halfway. And, 
And uh, we were on this vacation, and we were almost to Nashville. Well, I say almost, but we were within an hour or two, probably. And, uh, and we started having problems with the car. And we had some transmission problems. And, and we got there, and we got it in the shop in Nashville. How many of you know transmission problems on vacation is exactly what you hope for every vacation, right? It's, a, it's just a load of laughs. That's what it is. It's just a barrel of fun. And so anyway, we, we got it in and found out they, were gonna, they could rebuild it. But because it was an all-wheel drive, it was going to cost nearly, at that time, nearly $3,000 to fix. Well, we didn't really have any choice, so we said fix it, you know, get it in there. And, but let me, let me tell you the rest of the story. Because, you know, we could have, at the end of that, we could have looked back and said, man, you know, some vacation costs us three grand just to even get, the, get there and back. But let me tell you the rest of the story. It, 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 it was going to take a few days to repair the car, so we couldn't afford it, especially with paying that. But so my parents decided that they were going to rent a car for us and because we didn't know how long it was going to be and we had a, s- a certain amount of time for vacation. And they didn't want to miss out on that. So they rented a vehicle for us. Uh, uh, I think it was a minivan, if I remember correctly. And, and, uh, and so loaded up everything. And my family and I, we drove from, from uh, Nashville up to Kansas City about nine and a half hours. And then a few, few days later, when the car was ready, it was almost, almost a week later, uh, well, four or five days later, I guess, the, almost a business week later, and, uh, and they, they got the, I got the call that the car was ready, and so we had to return the rental car, so I left my family there, and my mom said, well, I'll just ride down with you, so she rode down with me to drop off the, the rental car, otherwise I was going to go by myself, and so... So, uh, so she drove back with me to head back down to Nashville. We started traveling there. And on the journey, this is where things got a little bit interesting uh, on, our, on our trip back because we were traveling. I had a, you know, it was before the days of the phone maps. So I had a, a GPS, you know, set up in my car and, and we were following the directions of that. And I always followed that because it would reroute me around traffic and that sort of thing. But we got all, almost over to St. Louis and all of a sudden, after all of the trips that we've had there, our, my GPS suddenly uh, told me to go on a different route than we had ever gone before. It had never tell, told me to take this one exit. It had never gone that way, but I decided, well, let's do it because maybe it's routing me around traffic in St. Louis. But, but it didn't do that. It took me a completely different, different route. We, we normally went on through St. Louis and went through southern Illinois and western Kentucky on down to Nashville. And that was the normal route that we would go. And if you look at it, it's the logical route. But instead, this took me south and we went uh, down through the Missouri boot heel and, and we then cut across to, to, uh, to Tennessee from there. So anyway, we're on this journey and it's new to me. I've never been this route before. Don't know why the GPS took me this way at all, but we got down to the little town of Haiti. Now, at the time, I didn't know how you pronounced it. I thought it was Haiti. And then I was corrected by, by Missourians and, who told me, no, that's Haiti. And it's like, okay, well, learn to spell. But, uh, but that's a different thing. But we stopped for gas there, and uh, it was about lunchtime, so we got some lunch. There was an Arby's there that was inside a pilot station, so we decided to go to get some Arby's, and we grabbed some sandwiches there. When, when, we were, when we went into the building to order, uh, I noticed that there was a lady standing next to a table next to the front door of the pilot station. And there was a, some sort of sign hanging on the front of the door, on, excuse me, on the front of the table. But, but we were going into the Arby's, which was on the side. So we parked and we, we were behind the table so we couldn't see what the sign said or anything. I didn't think anything about it. 
Well, after we got our food and we were loading up to hit the road again, I decided uh, that I was just going to get rid of all, any of the extra trash that we'd accumulated. So I gathered up all the trash in the, in the vehicle and I, and I walked up and put it in the trash can next to the front door of the pilot station. Now, because I had to go to the front door, when I turn around, now I'm facing the front of that table and I can see the sign. And as I look back and I, and I start to head back to the van, I suddenly see the sign and it says, Teen Challenge Women's Center. And I said, oh, Teen Challenge. She said, oh, are, uh, are you familiar with Teen Challenge? I said, yes, I am. In fact, I, I sit on the board of Teen Challenge of South Carolina. I love Teen Challenge. I'm, I'm very involved. I love the, the ministry of Teen Challenge. And we stood there and talked a little bit and ex, uh, you know, exchanged polite conversation. But then suddenly in a moment, I just felt this burning in my spirit that, that God had something he wanted me to say to this young woman who was finding freedom from addiction through Teen Challenge. And so I shared the word that God had laid on my heart and, and, and you know, her, ear, her eyes welled up with tears and she listened and God spoke to her and it was a powerful moment and, and, I, and I could really sense the presence of the Holy Spirit right there at that door outside the, the pilot station. And, and I got back in the rental car and as I got back in after that moment of ministry and feeling the presence of God, it suddenly dawned on me that I would never have been in that place to share what God wanted that young woman to hear if my transmission had not broken down in Nashville. And I shared that with my mom and I said, if that woman hangs in there with Teen Challenge and she makes it to heaven, and if I had any little part of that, then that is worth every penny of a $3,000 repair bill. You, you, here's the thing, you never really know what God is up to. You, you never know why he might be leading you down, down a path that seems painful to you. you. You never know why he might lead you into the desert. But the thing about Philip is he didn't wind up in the desert by mistake. It wasn't like he just made a decision. And he said, man, I'm out here in the desert. What do I do, God? I don't know how I got here. He was there explicitly because God said, go on this road out into the desert. God was in the desert by the perfect sovereign will of God. And Philip was sent into the desert not to, because of his own comfort. He didn't go out there because it was going to be a nice place to visit. But Philip was sent out into the desert so that a man from Ethiopia could find freedom from his sins and could find life in Jesus. We sing the song, you know, songs that, that proclaim that God holds our world in his hands, but, but do we really believe it? That's, that's important. You hold the world in my hand. Yes, when, when it's success. Yes, when it's, in a, when it's abundance. Yes, when it's prosperity. Yes, when it's health. Yes, when it's blessing. Is, is God holding that world in His hand? Yes, He absolutely is. But what about when it's in the desert? What about when you're wandering through the wilderness? It, what about when it's dry? What about when you feel all alone? What, what about when you don't even see a single chariot out on that road? Does God hold that world in His hand? Listen, if you can only say God won't let me go when you're in the place of blessing, then your faith is small and your faith is immature. In the desert, can you say I'm all alone in this desert except for one person, God, and he won't let go of me. He won't let go of me. I, I don't, listen, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're dealing with in your life, but I have a word of encouragement for you. 
to those of you who feel like you're walking down a desert road, those of you that feel that you're all alone, you feel like you're abandoned, you wondered why in the world God has led you to the place where you are, why has he allowed any of these things, and you begin to, you're walking that road and you think that nobody sees and you think that nobody cares, I want to say to you that the one who is God in times of blessing and abundance is also God in the desert, and there's a miracle at the end of the road. There's a miracle. God, God begins to reveal himself to us in those moments in, in just majestic and, and sweet ways. Several years ago, there was, and I've told this story at least on a Bible study. I don't know if I've ever told it on Sunday morning, but uh, there was a young preacher in his early 20s who wanted to, he got involved in missions work and he was working with an older uh, missionary slash minister in Mexico. And one day they were down there and this old missionary said that he wanted to go down to a certain village. And the reason he wanted to go there is because he had a dream about it. And the young preacher, you know, asked where it was. And the missionary said, I'm just, I'm not sure. It's, it's over the mountain somewhere in the desert. And the young preacher said, oh, oh, please, please, let's not do this. It's August in Mexico. It's 120 degrees in the shade. We have no idea where this village is and we're going to get lost. And, and the missionary looked at him and said, well, don't go. I'm not asking you to go. And the young preacher was like, oh, okay. I, I can't let the old man go alone. So they got in the truck and started traveling. And they drove and drove and drove and eventually... Uh, they, 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 they seemed like in the middle of nowhere. The young guy was like, we are lost. That's the truth. And, and the old missionary then eventually even left the road and just started driving through the desert. They're just out in the middle of the desert driving along. And then the truck broke down. The truck broke down. And the young preacher thought, perfect. Perfect. And he asked the old missionary, can you fix this truck? And the old missionary said, I know nothing about auto mechanics. What about you? And he said, I'm a preacher. I, I can't even change the blinker fluid in my car. And for those of you who don't know, there's no such thing. If you, if you ever get sent into a parts store for blinker fluid, somebody's playing a joke on you. And he, and he, he said, I, I can't do it. And then he said, we're, we're going to die. We're going to die out here in the desert. There was nothing in sight. There was no sign of life of any type, not a cow, not a dog, not a person in sight, nothing. They, they looked, began to look. They couldn't even find the highway. They, they were in the middle of the desert, had no idea where they were. They were just out in the middle of this sun-baked desert. And, and, and so that old missionary just climbed out of, his, out of the truck, and there was this little mesquite bush nearby that had a little puddle of shade in it. And so underneath it, so the missionary stretched out, put his head in that shade, pulled his hat down over his face, and went to sleep. And that young preacher was furious. He thought this crazy old man has gotten us cooked, gotten us killed. And he paced back and forth for a while. And finally, he just kicked the sole of the old missionary's boot and said, wake up. What are you doing? And the old missionary lifted up his hat and looked at him and said, well, I'm going to lie right here and see how God handles this. Well, that was just almost more than that young preacher can handle. He, he was so angry. He was just pacing back and forth. And then suddenly, off, off in the distance, a, a little cloud of dust appeared. And he just kept getting closer and closer and bigger and bigger. And then they began to hear this rattling noise as it got closer. And the old missionary sat up and he looked and he just said, Ah, that would be it. And the young preacher said, Well, that would be what? 
And the missionary said, the, the answer. And the preacher said, well, what is it? And he said, I, I don't know. And it came closer and closer. And they finally realized it was this big, battered, beat up, blue panel truck. And the side door on it was only held closed by a rope that had been tied on there. And it just came straight across the desert. No road, no people, no telephone line, nothing to give any kind of direction. And it came straight across the desert, right straight at them. And it screeched to a halt right beside their truck and dust was going everywhere. And, and, you know, and then a teenage boy untied the side door and slid it open and jumped out and, and with three or four tools in his hand and a blue bandana on his head. And he climbed up on the, on the bumper of their truck and lifted the hood and tinkered around in there for a little bit. And then he looked at the young preacher and said, listo, listo, or ready, ready. And the young preacher climbed in and turned the key and that truck roared back to life. And the boy slammed the hood, wrapped up his tools, jumped back in the panel truck, roped the door shut, and just took off, just like that. And the old missionary got behind the wheel and started driving. They were driving along, and still this young preacher was just fuming. He said, did you know those people were coming? And the missionary said, no, I never saw them before in my life. The preacher said, how how did they know we were, we, were, we were here? He said, I don't know. The preacher said, where did they come from? And he said, I don't know these things. Finally, the missionary looked at the young preacher and he said, I have a question for you. He said, is Jesus in the boat? <laughs> the young preacher was so exasperated. He said, what? What are you talking about? He said, is Jesus in the boat? And the young preacher said, well, yes, yes, Jesus is in the boat. And he said, no danger can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. He said, if Jesus is in the boat, the miracle is on the way. Now, the road which God calls us may not look like the one we, have, we would have chosen. But not only that, the miracle, when it comes, may not look like the miracle we would have selected. So somebody says, if there's a miracle within the road, what about my grandpa? What about my grandpa? He lived a godly life, to the, and at the age of 80, he got cancer, and we prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him, and he died anyway. Where's the miracle in it at the end of the road? Listen, brethren, listen, I believe in healing. I believe in a miraculous God. I have I've prayed with the sick and seen them healed instantly. I, I believe in it. But you know what? what? We have a vacant place in our theology. Charismatics and Pentecostals in particular need to recapture a meaningful theology of death. Listen, I, I just need to say something to you. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. It's just not. Well, we prayed for my grandpa and he served the Lord faithfully for, 80, faithfully for 80 years and we prayed for him and he still died and he went into Jesus' presence and got his glorified body and heard the angels sing and walked on the streets of gold. Isn't that horrible? It's so sad. Listen, there, there is a miracle at the end of the road for every single believer. May not be the one you think it's gonna, that, you, that it's gonna come. It may not be the one that you prefer. But God is at work. God is at work. And beyond that, there are miracles along the road. There are miracles in the desert. 
I mean, think about it. It is a miracle that Philip encountered that this Ethiopian eunuch, the, the first African convert, alone there on a desert road in a foreign country, and he, and he encountered him. And because of that encounter, when missionaries arrived in Ethiopia in the 19th century, they found a church. They found a body of Christ. They found believers. Isn't it interesting that God would use a man who could not reproduce himself to reproduce the body of Christ in a foreign country? Our God's a miracle-working God. We need to remember that. Our God is a miracle-working God. God feels none of the constraints of our human understanding of fairness. That's the problem. This is where we struggle. And this is really, really hard for us. Because we think God is going to be fair the way that we think of fairness. How many of you, let me just ask you a question. How many of you raised more than one child? Let me see your hand. Look at them. They're all just there and say, please say something helpful. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the, but listen, Julie and I have two daughters. And I learned a very, very important lesson early on in raising my two daughters. And that is, when I go to the grocery store, do you think I come home with one candy bar? Some of you are laughing. Oh, no. Oh, no. I had better come home with two. Three, depending on what mood my wife is in. But I better come home with two, and they'd better be identical. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, man. Oh, man. That's, I mean, that's the way it is. And, and if you bring home one, then you've got you to gotta gather around the table, and you have to measure it out to before you cut it with all of them watching very closely and and even then one of them is going to sue you at the end of it all you know her piece is bigger than mine you know that's just the way to you know what i used to do i used to have my girls i'd say okay here's the way it's going to work aaron you divide it then abby gets to choose the first piece well, there you go there's a there's a little answer for you so anyway but but, but here's the thing. We try to do that with fairness. We say, well, if one gets chocolate, everybody gets chocolate. But God doesn't always work like that. God doesn't work like that at all. God says, says okay, you, you step up here to this person. He says, eat this chocolate bar. The rest of you watch. Rest of you watch. Now, look at how he's being blessed. Look at the chocolate on his face. Look at how it's sticking to his fingers. Look at how he's smiling and laughing. And then somebody says, Lord, I, I, I want mine. Choose me next. Choose me next. What do I get? And he said, you get a desert. You get a desert. That's hard for us. But the thing for us to understand is that he holds my world in, my, in his hand. And the reason I get a desert is because there's something he wants to do in me that he can't accomplish any other way. Or there's something he wants to do through me that he can't, can't get me to that place where it needs to be done any other way. He, he's never going to let go of me in blessing, in prosperity, in hardship, in the desert. Wherever you are, there are miracles at the end of the road. There are miracles at the end of the road. I want to finish with a, with a story. Several years ago, I heard Dr. Mark Rutland tell the story of a mission trip that he was on in, in Peru. And uh, they, they were on their, in their mission compound in, in Puerto Bermudez, uh, right on the edge of the jungle. And it was right there because it was sort of a leaping place off into the deep jungle. And one night while they were there, this, this native Indian uh, came out of the deep forest and 
and, and he, he didn't speak any Spanish. He didn't speak any of the local Indian dialects. He, and they had to find somebody that could speak his language to translate it into Spanish. And then the Spanish would be translated into English. And so uh, they were going through this system and, and they, they learned in this conversation that this man came from an Indian village deep in the jungle. And as he, as he described to them where it was, they, they weren't even sure, frankly, what country it was in. They, they did, but they determined that, that the village was in a very dangerous territory. And this was during a very, very dangerous time in Peru. That was in the days of the Sendero Luminoso, known as, as the, in English, that'd be the Shining Path, which was a group of communist guerrillas. And it was just, they were everywhere. It was just a very, very dangerous time. And the deep jungle was a very scary place. And that man told them, though, that there was sickness in his village and that the chief was sick. He said, we heard that there were missionaries here with medicine, and we want you to come and heal our chief. Well, it seemed like a great opportunity, and, you know, if the chief was healed, it would give them an opportunity to be able to preach the gospel to this whole village that has never heard the gospel. Of course, there was the other part of it, because if, what if the chief died? What if they weren't able to, to cure him? Maybe the Indians would decide that cutting their heads off and pouring their blood into the river would be, would be something they needed to do to, do to pacify the spirits. And so maybe you don't see any danger in that, but it felt dangerous to them. But they prayed about it, and they felt like the Lord said to go. So Dr. Rutland was in charge, and he said, we're going to leave tomorrow morning, 5 o'clock, before sunrise. Then he turned to his assistant, whose name was Carlos, and he told him, he said, I want you to go to town. I want you to get fuel for the motor and then get a, a big sack full, great big sack full of cans of tuna. Now that may seem odd to you, but those, those Indians in the, in the jungle, they spent their entire life trying to get fish out of the river and to clean them. And so uh, to be able to pop open a can and pull out nice clean fish was a miracle to them. So they would hand them out as gifts just to, just to maybe open the door to have a conversation. You know, the book of Proverbs says that a man's gifts will bring him before kings. So, so uh, he told Carlos, he said, fill that, that bag up, put, put a, fill that bottom of that boat up with cans of tuna fish and we'll take them up there. And so they left the next morning early before, before daylight, tired, sleepy, exhausted, but they started on their trip and, their group consisted of Dr. Rutland and an anthropology professor from Lee University and three Peruvian pastors and this translator along with the Indian. And the Indian uh, from the village was perched with his feet up on the bow of this long, long dugout canoe. And on the back of that big dugout canoe, they had this about a 12 horsepower Evan Rude motor. And they were going upstream against a, a 30 horsepower river. So it was a long journey. And what they did for the, in this canoe, they jammed pieces of bamboo between the gunnels and put their knees on the bottom of the boat, crossed the ankles, and then perched their rear ends on the bamboo rod. Now, when you ride like that for a long period of time, uh, I'm here to tell you, you're going to get in touch with your anatomy in a whole new way. You know, you, parts of you that you haven't even thought of in a long time are suddenly preeminent in your mind, you know. But they traveled in this uncomfortable position. They went through impenetrable rain. They were all just bailing out water uh, with coffee cans just to keep the canoe from sinking. And then the rain stopped and the sun came out and just blazing heat. They watched steam literally rise off their own bodies. Well, they went up the Rio Peaches, the main river that their compound was on, and they moved on to the, to the Ucayali River. 
and then moved into other tributaries that didn't even have names. And they weren't even sure at this point in time if they were still in Peru. They don't, didn't even know if they had crossed the border. Eventually, though, they found themselves on very small rivers that weren't much more than 10 feet across. And, and, and uh, I mean, they, they could nearly touch the banks of the river on either side of them. Hour after hour after hour, they traveled. They were exhausted. They were sunbaked. But finally... Along the shoreline, they began to see Indians with war paint on their faces, with large bows and arrows that were about five and a half feet long. And they're stepping out of the bush. They couldn't even see them uh, unless they moved. And the guy, the, the Indian perched on the front of the canoe said, we're, we're nearly there. So Dr. Rutland said to Carlos, he said, all right, Carlos, get that tuna fish ready. And the minute the boat touches the mud, start handing them out. And Carlos said, oh, the tuna fish. <laughs> and Dr. Rutherford said, oh, the tuna fish. Uh, Carlos, I don't want to hear, oh, the tuna fish. What do you mean, oh, the tuna fish? He said, Dr. Rutherford, it was early. I was sleepy. I got the gas for the motor, but I forgot the tuna fish. I'm so sorry. And Dr. Rutherford said, you're sorry? You're sorry? These guys are wearing war paint. Tell, you're sorry? Tell my widow you're sorry. He was furious. And everybody in the boat got really quiet because it was obvious to everybody that the missionary had the demon, you know. And so, so what do you do when you've revealed your level of carnality to everybody? Well, you try to say something that sounds religious. So Dr. Rutland, trying to calm it down, himself down, said, well, there's nothing to do now but trust God. I mean, you know, when you've done everything you know to do, why not just try trusting God? So he said, well, there's nothing to do now but trust in God. And he says, telling the story, he says, he says, if you don't believe me, you can. And he told the name of this professor from Lee University. He said, you can call him to verify it. But he said, after he, right after he said that, they hadn't gone a hundred yards up that river when suddenly a great big fish jumped out of the water and landed in the bottom of the boat. <laughs> landed. They didn't, it just jumped into the boat. And then Carlos turned around and looked at Dr. Rutland and just smiled and shrugged. And the Lord in that moment spoke to Dr. Rutland right there in the boat. And he said, what's the matter with you? I made this jungle. I made these Indians. I made this river. I made these fish. And they leap at my command. He said, all I ever asked you to do is point the canoe upstream. I do all the rest. Listen, my friend. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. But here's what I know. God made that river. God made that jungle. God made that desert. He's in charge. I don't know what you're going through. And I think one of the most insulting things that a preacher can say is, I know how you feel, because I don't know how you feel. You may be in the worst desert of your whole life. You may be facing things that you never dreamed you would face. Keep on moving. Keep on moving. Right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. Don't grow, grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will reap a harvest.
It's what he says in his word. Keep on moving. Keep on moving. There's a miracle on the way. There's a miracle on the way. Would you bow your head and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank, that you, thank you that you are a God of miracles. And I thank you, God, that there is no road to which you will lead us where you are not God. I thank you that you do hold our lives in your hand. I, and, and I thank you, Lord, that you know where we are and you are, you are the one that holds all of creation in your grasp. You're in charge. You are sovereign. And now all over this place, if you'd say, Pastor Dave, would you pray for me? I'm in a desert. I, I just, I just, if that's you, I won't need you just to raise your hand right where you are and hold it up. And, and you, you'd say, I'm walking through a desert and I need the touch of, of the Lord. That's you. Just slip your hand up right where you are. Yeah, several hands. Some that I know of that are walking through that that are not here. They're in my prayers today. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would pour your strength out into these people. I, will, I pray that, that they will know that, that they who wait upon the Lord will, will mount up with wings and eat with e like eagles. They'll walk and not faint. They'll run and not grow weary. You will renew their strength. Help them, God. Help them to know that, that, that that's true and to have a calm, calm assurance that you are Lord and that you're going to see them through. And I'm praying, God, that you will you pour that into them right now. Give them the vision to see that, the, that at the end of this road, as dusty and dry as it is, that there is a miracle waiting for them. I, I believe you for that, God. Help them to hang on to you. Help them to walk with you. Help them to trust you. Help them to obey enthusiastically, even though they're in the middle of the, of the desert. And in so doing, God, that they'll move quicker and quicker toward that miracle. And now with heads still bowed and eyes closed, I have another question. If you'd say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. I'm not in the desert. I, I, I'm actually in a place of blessing and joy and happiness. But will you pray for me that my hope and my faith will be fixed on God and not fixed on my blessings? If that's you, you just lift your hand up right now and say, that's right where I am. I'm walking in the blessings of God, but I want my heart to stay fixed on Him. I don't want to get caught up with the blessings. I want to stay focused on God. If that's you, slip your hand up. Yeah, all over this place. Yeah. Lord, we thank you that you are God. And, and the things that you give us are not. You are God, not the blessings you pour out on, pour out on us. And so, Lord, whether our way is dusty, uh, a des desert road, or, the, or, or it's the path of blessings and roses, you're the same God. And we give you all the glory and honor and praise. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.